Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of torture, murder, genocide, and the sexual abuse of minors that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. If you're aware of a child who's being abused or neglected, you can report this to the National Child Abuse Hotline, reachable at 1-800-4-A-CHILD, which is 1-800-422-4453. You can also visit childwelfare.gov for state-by-state -state resources for reporting child abuse or neglect. The young boy, Werner Schmidtke, knew he was risking everything when he snuck outside his hometown's walls. But life in Colonia Dignidad was no life at all. He had to leave. This wasn't his first attempt to escape. He was almost an expert at it now, creeping past the armed patrols at the fence. He knew how to slip by the vicious Alsatian guard dogs. He'd even determined just where to step without triggering the electronic sensors. With some surreptitious darting and careful footwork, finally Schmidtke was free. Outside the compound, he took a deep breath, relishing the taste of fresh air. He could live his own life now. No more torturous hours laboring in the fields. No more fear of beatings for asking the wrong thing. Instead, he could... What? Schmidtke had never thought what he'd do with his freedom once he achieved it. He'd been too caught up in escaping. Schmidtke wanted to turn to his parents for advice, but they were still locked inside. He didn't know what to do without them. With a heavy heart and leaden steps, the boy turned back. Over the course of his childhood, he escaped from Colonia Dignidad five times, and five times he willingly returned. He simply didn't know how to live without someone else telling him what to do. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Cults for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our first and only episode on Colonia Dignidad and their leader, Paul Schaefer. We'll explore how his childhood in Nazi Germany hardened Paul into an authoritarian cult leader as an adult. We'll also discuss the murders and torture sessions that went on under Schaefer's watch, the ways the cult covered up his sexual abuse of children, and his followers' struggles to integrate into wider society after his death. Paul Schaefer, the founder of Colonia Dignidad, was born in 1921 into a deeply authoritarian society in Siegburg, Germany. 
On January 30, 1933, when Schaefer was only 11, Adolf Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany. He quickly organized propaganda campaigns to make his people more nationalistic and therefore more compliant. Three years later, in 1936, the Nazi party banned groups like the Boy Scouts and replaced them with the Hitler Youth, a government-run program to instill children with authoritarian, anti-Semitic ideology. The organization helped Hitler's loyalists separate impressionable children from their parents and to brainwash them. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology from here. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or a psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Researchers Nico Folklander and Hans Joachim Voth found that of all Nazi propaganda techniques, youth programs and school curriculums were the most effective. In fact, more than seven decades later, those who'd grown up under Nazi rule still agreed with many of the same values they'd been brainwashed to hold. In the case of the Hitler Youth, adolescents were taught racial bias against Jewish people and members of other minority ethnicities. Boys and girls were kept separate, and each was instructed to fulfill traditional gender roles. For boys, the Hitler Youth was run like a miniature army boot camp. They learned how to march, fire weapons, and the importance of the military chain of command. At the core of these lessons was the value of authority and the importance of trusting and supporting the Nazi government. Like other boys in late 1930s Germany, Paul Schaefer was required by law to enlist with the Hitler Youth. A few years later, during World War II, he enlisted in the Luftwaffe, or the German Air Force, as a medic. We don't know much about his time in service, but Schaefer, like other combat veterans, probably witnessed violent and traumatic events. The UK's Mental Health Foundation noted that in the long term, people can respond to trauma very differently. But numbing one's emotions is common. This means that survivors may later struggle to empathize with others or respond appropriately to others' emotions because their own feelings have been dampened. But Schaefer didn't see himself as traumatized. He believed he was a patriot who gave his all for his country. But it wasn't enough. On April 30th, 1945, Schaefer's Führer, Adolf Hitler, shot himself in Berlin. A week later, in the middle of the night on May 7, 1945, German troops surrendered in Reims, France, signaling the end of the war. Psychotherapist Maxwell Gutman noted that many people, when faced with evidence that they will fail, enter a state of denial, become stubborn, and double down on bad ideas. This is especially pronounced when the stakes are very high, like a wartime military defeat. Some individuals, after suffering a catastrophic loss, will paradoxically react by becoming even more certain their ideology is correct. So after his beloved country lost the war, Schaefer became even more fervently anti-Semitic and authoritarian. After a lifetime of Nazi indoctrination, the German surrender felt like a personal blow, one that sent him reeling. To make matters worse, Germany was quickly becoming an unsafe place for people like Schaefer. As Allied forces became aware of the horrors of the Holocaust, they began arresting Nazi officers, 
charging them with war crimes and executing the guilty. In 1945, 24-year-old Schaefer was terrified of arrest. Though he wasn't actually high-profile enough to be a target for Nazi hunters, he wasn't willing to take the chance. So if anyone asked him what he'd done during the war, he claimed that he was a traveling Lutheran pastor. To sell this story, Schaefer roamed the country from 1945 to 1961, preaching his own brand of Christianity mingled with German nationalism, he was so effective at pretending to be a pastor, he began to gather real followers. They believed he was a holy man of God. They accompanied him from town to town, helping to spread his message. His lies worked, in part, because he made for such a striking figure. It's hard to say when, but at some point in his early years, Schaefer lost his right eye in an accident involving a fork and replaced it with a glass prosthetic. Once he adopted his clergy persona, Schaefer found that his glass eye only enhanced his mysterious, mystical appearance. Schaefer's religious teachings were based on the Nazi principles he'd learned as a child. He claimed that men and women needed to show their devotion to God by practicing abstinence. Even married husbands and wives were instructed to avoid sexual contact as much as possible. His religious tenets were also authoritarian. Schaefer taught his followers that they should submit to him alone, as only he had been divinely appointed to interpret God's will. Schaefer used his growing collection of followers to maintain his cover. He knew that if he ever let slip that he wasn't a real pastor, others might guess at his past. But his dark secrets went beyond his time as a Nazi. He was also an abusive pedophile. Psychologists Lisa J. Cohen and Igor I. Gallagher noted that not all pedophiles act on their inappropriate attraction. In essence, a pedophile will typically only molest a child if they believe they won't get caught and are also able to overcome feelings of guilt that would ordinarily dissuade them from harming their victim. Schaefer didn't need to worry about guilt or empathy thanks to the emotionally numbing effects of warfare and the Nazi programs which had taught him to dehumanize others. As for a fear of getting caught, he'd already managed to evade Nazi hunters for over a decade. By comparison, it seemed almost too easy to get away with sexual predation. It's unknown how often Schaefer acted on his pedophilia during his time as a wandering pastor, but eventually he settled down and founded an orphanage near Bonn, the then capital of West Germany. Ostensibly, he did this to maintain his ruse. Devout Christian clergymen were always looking for opportunities to care for the less fortunate and serve the community. But Schaefer's motives were more sinister than that. The orphanage gave him ample opportunity to be alone with young children. These children with no living parents or other guardians were utterly vulnerable, the perfect victims. Writer and former private detective Charles Montaldo noted that active child molesters are statistically more likely to find jobs as teachers, coaches, clergy members, or in other professions that offer regular contact with potential underage victims. Sexual predators then have more opportunities for unsupervised interaction and grooming in the workplace. Except Schaefer's targets weren't quite as compliant as he'd originally assumed. It is not entirely clear how word got out, 
But by 1959, German authorities started scrutinizing Schaefer for allegations of child sexual abuse. When Schaefer learned that he was the subject of a child molestation investigation, he panicked. Ironically, he wasn't concerned about officials uncovering his sexual abuses. Instead, he worried German police would learn of his Nazi connections. Schaefer wasn't willing to face the music. Instead, he fled the country. He and a group of about 70 followers, including both orphans and adults, found a new home in the remote Chilean village of Colonia Dignidad, near the town of Parral. Up next, Schaefer's authoritarianism and sexual abuse worsen as he becomes the unquestioned leader of a cult. Now back to the story. In 1961, 40-year-old former Nazi serviceman and pedophile Paul Schaefer fled Germany. He traveled to South America with around 300 followers, most of whom believed his cover story, that he was a Lutheran pastor. To fund the overseas journey, Schaefer ordered his most devoted people to sell their homes and lands. One couple, Helmut and Emmy Schaffrick, donated the equivalent of $22,500 under assurances that the relocation was merely temporary. With the cash, Schaefer purchased about 70 square miles of land, roughly 225 miles south of Santiago, Chile. He then built a small village surrounded by forests and mountainous terrain. He modeled his new town, dubbed Colonia Dignidad, on the bucolic German countryside he remembered from his youth. The Colonia was just one of many German settlements in South America after World War II. Many Latin American rulers were, like Adolf Hitler, authoritarians. They sympathized with Nazi leadership. When Allied forces began arresting and trying former Axis officials, many South American nations provided a safe haven for war criminals. Colonia Dignidad was no exception. According to the Mirror's Emma Pietra, the compound even briefly hosted notorious Nazi torturer Josef Mengele as he fled arrest. Schaefer boldly collaborated with former Nazis because he felt protected by his fake identity as a Lutheran pastor. He could get away with anything, so long as he presented himself as an upstanding citizen. Once settled in Colonia Dignidad, Schaefer told his followers he wanted to return to their wholesome German roots. They'd live a utopian, agrarian existence, rejecting technology and farming the land with traditional tools. But in order to harvest enough, his followers spent endless hours in the fields. They worked from sunup to sundown, never taking a break. This was supposedly a way for them to show their loyalty, but in reality, they often ended up hungry, malnourished, and exhausted. The Colonia Dignidad didn't get visitors. But if it had, the outsiders might have felt like they were stepping back in time. Followers wore turn-of-the-century Bavarian clothing. There were no cars or signs of modern technology, except for the guards at the wall, who always toted large guns. All of the men lived together in one hall while the women lived in another. Kids were kept separate from their parents in the children's house. Schaefer also increased the number of kids in the colonia by opening a school outside the compound's walls for underprivileged local children. 
To recruit students, he negotiated with the poor farmers who lived outside the village. He argued that the Colonia Dignidad school could ensure children were better fed and more educated than their impoverished parents of the remote countryside. In this way, he convinced many locals to send their children to board with him at the Colonia, ensuring he had a steady supply of new recruits and underage victims. In exchange for his so-called generosity, Schaefer asked local farmers to repay the favor by serving essentially as guards. They were to be Schaefer's eyes and ears, letting him know in advance if outsiders were coming near the town. Over time, the farmers even started physically threatening and intimidating his enemies outside the colonia. One reporter with The Independent, Phil Davidson, recounted an incident where he tried to secure an interview with Schaefer. He never met the cult leader because all of his attempts to reach the compound were thwarted by machete-wielding farmers. But these guards and enforcers weren't just there to keep Schaefer's enemies out. They also kept his followers in. The people residing in Colonia Dignidad in 1961 lived brutal, torturous lives. The self-aggrandizing Schaefer adopted the title Der Permanente Uncle, or The Permanent Uncle, a nickname designed to depict him as authoritative and patriarchal. Schaefer required his followers to confess their sins to him and claimed that only he had the power to grant absolution. This broke significantly from the Christian theology that had once provided him cover, but his followers were by then too loyal to question the shift. Their behavior was severely regulated, especially their sex lives. Men and women were kept apart. Even married couples had to live separately. When a woman occasionally did manage to get pregnant and give birth, her baby was immediately taken away to be indoctrinated. Harvard Medical School's Stephen Hassan is one of the world's leading experts on cult mind control. He described the BITE model, a four-pronged tool that cult leaders use to keep their followers pacified and compliant. The B in BITE stands for behavior control. Leaders dictate where their followers can live, who they can speak with, and their sexual choices. Eventually, a follower will get used to obeying orders and then habitually give up control over their own life to their cult leader. Information control, the second element of the BITE model, involves preventing members from receiving news from outside the cult. It ensures that only the leader's teachings are treated as valid or authoritative, and discourages followers from thinking for themselves or second-guessing what they're taught. Schaefer forbade radios, televisions, newspapers, and any other form of contact with the outside world. His followers couldn't leave the colonia. The compound was gated, guarded by trained dogs and armed patrols. He even had sensors hidden in rocks around the area, so he would immediately know if someone was coming or going. He claimed this was to help his followers maintain the naive, idyllic quality of Germany's glory days, in practice, it kept his people ignorant. They never learned the local language, instead speaking German exclusively. Even if they did make it off the compound, they wouldn't be able to communicate with anyone they came across in the area. Everyone living on the Colonia worked continuously, often to the point of collapse. They farmed, milled, and operated hospitals, all using technology from the early 20th century. 
monotonous, exhausting work is a key feature of thought control, the third element of the bite method. When a follower spends all of their energy on grueling, repetitive tasks that don't stimulate the mind, they lose some capacity for independent reasoning. Schaefer's followers, especially the young men he preyed upon, were also regularly drugged to further weaken their mental faculties. An old friend of Schaefer's who had followed him to Chile, German doctor Hartmut Hopp, forcefully administered pills under Schaefer's orders. The sedatives kept his victims calm and ensured they could rarely think clearly enough to recognize their trauma for what it was. The final bite technique, emotional control, involves the leader's attempts to manage the feelings of his followers. Hassan wrote that cult enforcers use shame, exhausting work, and drugs to undermine people's emotions. In this way, brainwashed followers depend on their leaders even to tell them how they're feeling, and they're more likely to ignore red flags that would otherwise trigger anxiety or fear. Worst of all, Schaefer began to openly act on his pedophilic impulses. His people were so utterly brainwashed, he didn't even try to hide the fact that he was sexually assaulting young children on a regular basis. Reporter Phil Davison explained, children and their parents were taught that it was an honor for a child to be chosen to share the bed of their supreme leader. Much of what we know about the sexual abuses at Colonia Dignidad comes from survivors' testimony. One former member was Werner Schmidtke, whose parents followed Schaefer from Germany to Chile in 1962. Schmidtke was only two when his family left his homeland. Schaefer's lieutenants separated the toddler from his mother during the sea voyage, before they even arrived in Chile. The segregation continued at Colonia Dignidad, where Schmidtke lived in the Kinderhaus, or the Children's House. The only adult who lived at the Kinderhaus was Schaefer. Schmidtke remembered the first time he was summoned to Schaefer's quarters when he was seven or eight. Schmidtke explained, He sat me down on his bed and started to stroke me and ask me questions, to talk the way a father talks to his child, and I had no parents anymore. I have never forgotten it. That is when the abuse and the rape started. Schmidtke knew that the other adults didn't care about what was happening to him. He even suspected that some people approved of the sexual assault and saw Schmidtke as lucky to have captured Schaefer's attention. When no one within the cult would help, Schmidtke resolved to escape. But five attempts all ended in failure. He was too young and too unfamiliar with the wider world to know what to do outside the Colonia's fence. He always turned himself back in. His story of failed escape and cult conditioning mirrored that of Dr. Hartmut Hopp. He was friends with Schaefer back in Germany, and the faux pastor had even helped pay Hopp's way through medical school. But the bindings of friendship weren't enough to keep 17-year-old Hopp happy in captivity when Colonia Dignidad was founded. He frequently attempted to run away at first, though he was always recaptured, returned, and re-indoctrinated. Eventually, Hop transformed from a rebellious youth to Schaefer's right-hand man. Not only did he help Schaefer cover up his crimes, Hop also intimidated and viciously beat malcontents. Over time, his services were more frequently needed, 
By the 1970s, Colonia Dignidad's population wasn't comprised solely of Schaefer's willing followers. The Colonia also allegedly housed a steady stream of Chilean political prisoners. In 1973, 12 years after Colonia was founded, one of Schaefer's top officials and enforcers, Reinhard Göring, established contact with agents of DINA, the Chilean secret police. He transformed Colonia Dignidad into one of the many prison camps dedicated to confining and torturing new President Augusto Pinochet's critics. Pinochet and Schaefer were natural allies. After all, a dictator like Pinochet wielded exactly the type of authoritarian power that appealed to a Nazi like Schaefer. They were like-minded enough that the two crafted a malicious partnership. Schaefer ordered tunnels dug under the compound where dissidents could be held in secret. His own trusted officials worked as guards and torturers. And in return, Pinochet ensured nobody looked too deeply into Schaefer's activities. Because Colonia Dignidad was so remote and secure, Pinochet knew that if he wanted to make someone disappear, the Colonia was the place to make it happen. He sent dissidents to Schaefer, where they were tortured, often to death, right under the picturesque houses where cult members lived. One such prisoner was Eric Zot Chuecas, a 26-year-old student activist who was arrested in January of 1975. During his imprisonment, Chuecas struggled to keep track of time, but he estimated that he arrived in Colonia Dignidad around February. There, he was kept tied to a bed. He couldn't even get up and walk around his cell. The only time he was allowed on his feet was when he was marched deep underground into the torture chambers. There, he was once more bound by the hands, feet, and back, so he couldn't move. Then, interrogators probed Chuecas for information. If they didn't like an answer he gave, he was subjected to a painful electric shock. Eventually, Chuecas was transferred to another prison. Thanks to appeals from his family, the UN was able to locate him and set him free. Chuecas was lucky to survive his imprisonment. Most political dissidents never left the colonia alive. But political prisoners weren't the only ones who were tortured. Some victims were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. Declassified U.S. documents suggest that in January of 1985, mathematics professor Boris Weisfeiler was hiking outside Colonia Dignidad when he was seized by police, beaten, and brought inside the compound. Under questioning, Weisfeiler allegedly revealed that he was an American, and even worse in Schaefer's eyes, he was Jewish. Schaefer was still utterly adherent to anti-Semitic Nazi ideology and quickly determined that Weisfeiler should be tortured to death. Ten days after Weisfeiler was last seen alive, officials reportedly found his backpack near Los Sauces, a river that ran very near the Colonia Dignidad compound. Police launched a perfunctory investigation before declaring that he'd drowned. Weisfeiler's family didn't believe this narrative, but with the Chilean government unwilling to cooperate, they had no recourse to find the truth. They had to learn to live with the ambiguity around their loved one's disappearance, and they weren't alone. It's difficult to say with certainty how many prisoners died in Colonia Dignidad's torture chambers. 
The Pinochet administration is estimated to have arrested 45,000 activists and killed more than 2,000 of them. And the Colonia was considered one of the worst destinations for an arrested prisoner. Thanks to his alliance with President Pinochet, Schaefer had everything he'd ever wanted. His people were all too brainwashed and too scared to fight back. He no longer had to fear Nazi hunters or government investigations. He seemed destined to get away with it all until a few activists prepared to fight back. Next, we'll discuss how Schaefer was finally brought down, and we'll look at what happened to the cult members when they tried to build new lives without their leader. Now back to the story. After Colonia Dignidad was founded in 1961, former Nazi Paul Schaefer ruled the community with an iron fist. He forced his adult followers to work themselves to exhaustion while he openly sexually abused their sons. He imprisoned and tortured political dissidents, and both the locals and Chilean government officials were happy to protect him. But Schaefer had few allies outside of Chile, and world leaders were growing suspicious. In April of 1986, American Ambassador Harry G. Barnes Jr. received a memorandum about Colonia Dignidad. An anonymous informant who claimed to be a member of Pinochet's police listed several instances of torture and human rights abuses Schaefer carried out at the Chilean government's orders. The source claimed they were present for the capture of Boris Weisfeiler, an American hiker who'd gone missing the year before, and that they'd willingly handed over the prisoner to be held hostage in the cult. The source continued, Later on, we found that this person, after being savagely interrogated, was made to kneel on the ground and was murdered with a shot to the nape of his neck. This execution was carried out solely by the Germans, who took advantage of the absence of Chilean authorities. Ambassador Barnes was never able to verify the claims made by the memorandum, but he was shaken by what he'd learned and resolved to find out more about Schaefer's killer cult. Then, in 1988, two escaped former members resurfaced in Bonn, West Germany. George and Lottie Packmore testified to Parliament that the people of Colonia Dignidad were being held captive against their will. Lottie tearfully described one of her attempted escapes and her recapture by Schaefer's right-hand man, Hartmut Hopp. As he returned her to the compound, Hopp threatened, Another peep out of you and you'll get an injection to keep you quiet. The Packmores also reported on Schaefer's sexual abuse of children. By the late 1990s, Schaefer was once again the subject of a molestation investigation. In 1996, Schaefer faced arrest and prosecution for his predation. And just as he'd done in Germany, 75-year-old Paul Schaefer fled. In his absence, his trusted lieutenant stepped in to run Colonia Dignidad. Reinhard During, his top liaison to the Chilean secret police, and Hartmut Hopp continued Schaefer's Nazi reign of terror. That is, until 1998, when President Augusto Pinochet was arrested for terrorism and genocide charges while traveling through the UK. 
Initially, the Chilean government called for Pinochet's release, but by 2000, Santiago courts reversed course and likewise charged Pinochet for his crimes. Without the president to protect the cult, their actions finally started to catch up with them. Raids of Chilean government buildings turned up evidence of secret internment camps for political dissidents, including Colonia Dignidad. Armed with this information, Chilean and German officials called for Schaefer's arrest. In 2005, investigators learned that he was staying in a safe house in Las Acacias, Argentina, about 40 kilometers outside of Buenos Aires, and sent a team of armed guards to arrest him. Argentinian authorities, in riot gear, burst through the door with a battering ram. Inside, they found 83-year-old Schaefer. He was old, emaciated, barely able to climb out of bed, and didn't resist arrest. As police clapped handcuffs over his wrists, he only asked, why? Even after all these years, he didn't seem to understand that he'd done anything wrong. Because Chile's legal system allows a person to be tried in absentia, at the time of Schaefer's arrest, he'd already been found guilty. In 2006, he was sentenced to 33 years behind bars. Schaefer was convicted for abusing 25 children, but some estimates suggest he had thousands of victims while he ran Colonia Dignidad. When he returned to his home country, Schaefer's lawyers tried to argue that he was too old, sick, and confused to serve his sentence. Judges dismissed their claims and sent him to prison. But he served under five years before he died of heart failure at the age of 88. However, Schaefer was only one leader in the cult, and authorities were far from finished. In 2005, police raided the Colonia Dignidad compound, they found massive weapons caches that dated back to the Pinochet regime. The hoard included grenades, machine guns, rocket launchers, and even evidence of sarin gas, a deadly nerve agent. A subsequent raid in 2008 uncovered more evidence of the cult's crimes. Mass graves were unearthed outside of the colonia's walls. Investigators also dug up buried cars they were able to link the license plate numbers to unsolved missing persons cases. Most of the Colonia's victims were opponents of Pinochet. But even with the wealth of evidence against him, the Chilean government struggled to prosecute Schaefer's collaborators. His top enforcers, Hartmut Hopp and Reinhard During, fled to Germany, evading arrest. When authorities tried to strike an extradition agreement, they were unable to work out a deal. The German police argued that Chilean officials weren't able to provide enough evidence to justify extradition, especially because Hopp and During, like Schaefer, were already tried in absentia and found guilty. And even if justified, Germany's policy has for a long time been that it does not extradite its own citizens, period. Germany's stance drew criticism from its citizens, who interpreted their refusal to cooperate as protecting and enabling former Nazi war criminals. But German officials held firm. As of 2012, Hopp and several other Colonia Dignidad members lived in Krefeld, Germany. They attended the same church, which preached a segregationalist, authoritarian version of Christianity that bore a striking similarity to that taught by Schaefer. 
The church's pastor has consistently emphasized in interviews that he is not interested in perpetuating Colonia Dignidad's violence, but he will welcome all former followers with open arms. In early 2019, a group of Colonia Dignidad survivors, including sexual abuse victim Werner Schmidke, filed a petition to reopen proceedings to extradite Hop and During. They even offered to testify on their first-hand experiences with abuse. German prosecutors have reportedly dropped the case due to a lack of evidence, but the German government is promising compensation to survivors. Although During, Hop, and various other leaders seemed to escape justice, at least they were no longer running Colonia Dignidad. In their absence, with no new leaders stepping in to fill the power vacuum, the prisoners were finally free. Well, at least on the surface, many survivors were still trapped in emotional cages. By the early 2000s, roughly two-thirds of the population of Colonia Dignidad was aged 65 or older. Many of Schaefer's former followers had spent their entire adult lives in the cult and knew nothing of the world outside. After decades of authoritarian rule, living their lives in small rooms, working the fields, and listening to Schaefer's teachings, his old followers didn't know how to function on their own. The modern world felt utterly alien, so they decided to remain on the compound. The challenges of reintegrating into society after a lifetime of isolation can be hard to predict. The situation is too unique to run many studies, but psychologist Nick Canass examined astronauts who returned home after extended periods in space and found that even these homecomings can trigger depression and intense stress. In other words, people like the lifelong Colonia Dignidad members can struggle to find their place in the wider world, which seemingly functioned so well and for so long without them in it. Psychologist Joe Grafham noted similar issues among incarcerated prisoners who returned to society at the end of their sentences. He found that when people become used to the routine and structure that comes from a highly controlled and regulated environment, they can grow anxious at the idea of once more having agency over their own lives. The thought of freedom becomes itself a source of stress and even panic. For some individuals, it actually felt more comforting and more liberating to stay at the site of their old confinement. Although Colonia Dignidad was the site of great trauma, its familiarity was still somehow comforting to many survivors. Film director Florian Gallenberger noted the incongruity when he toured the facilities to research a movie about the cult's history. He said, They told us what Schaefer did, and it was very painful to hear. I asked what happened to the furniture. The guide hesitated for a moment and said his parents were sleeping in it now. People had been abused in that bed for 40 years, and he said they were proud to be sleeping in it. As of this recording in 2019, roughly 150 former cult members still live in the same tiny remote village. They renamed it in 1991 from Colonia Dignidad to Villa Baviera. In an effort to distance themselves from their dark and violent history, people of the Villa Baviera have tried to rebrand their community as a wholesome German tourist destination. 
They host annual Oktoberfest celebrations where residents wear lederhosen and speak German to one another. Anna Schnellenkamp, daughter of one of Schaefer's officials, today serves as the Villa Baviera's tourism manager. She, like many residents, has never lived outside the compound's walls. But these celebrations and rebrandings simply cover up scars that may never truly heal. While visitors can review gift shops and listen to live Bavarian music, there's little public acknowledgement of the crimes against humanity that were perpetrated within the town's walls. If tourists don't ask about it, the locals won't tell. Today, Villa Baviera echoes the themes of Paul Schaefer's own life. It puts forth a wholesome image of German pride and culture. But beneath the surface beats a dark heart and dangerous secrets that could spill out should anyone dare to peer within. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on Paul Schaefer and Colonia Dignidad, among the many sources we used, we found the reporting of Phil Davidson for The Independent and Alex Hannaford for Telegraph, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Cults, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Cults on Spotify, just open the app and type Cults in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Carly Madden. This episode of Cults was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Drew Cole, and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Mm-hmm.